Good evening. Please turn with me to the book of 2 Timothy. We are in chapter 2, continuing on in our series, Fighting the Good Fight of the Faith. Last time we were in uh, this series, I believe two weeks ago, we were exhorted by uh, Paul through Timothy to be strong in grace. A man's strength does not come from his physical power. It's not measured, in by, measured by his earthly might, rather, by the extent to which the man abides in Christ by faith alone. In chapter 2 of this letter, Paul also commands Timothy to entrust these matters, these teachings and this authority, to reliable men who will then be equipped to teach others as under-shepherds of Christ. And in this uh, letter, this uh, passage that we looked at last time, Paul offers three vocational images for the minister of God's word. He is a soldier who separates himself from the comforts of civilian affairs, seeking only to please his commanding officer. He is also the athlete who subjects his body to the strictest discipline, that not only may he compete well, but according to the rules. The minister is also the hardworking farmer, tilling and sowing, living by faith with the trust and the confidence that God himself will provide an abundant harvest for his labor. Well, tonight in our passage, the analogy continues as Paul tells Timothy to be a good workman, correctly handling the word of God. As a worker of the word, what is the minister called to do? And what are all Christians called to do as we appropriate the grace of God and fulfill our responsibilities as an effective witness to a watching world? Let us read... 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Paul writes, Keep reminding them of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter. Because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have wandered away from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, The Lord knows those who are his. And everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for noble purposes, and some for ignoble. If a man cleanses himself from the latter, he will be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Flee the evil desires of youth, and pursue Righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments, 
because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct, in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil, who has taken them captive to do his will. This is God's holy and inspired word. Let us pray. Father, on this evening, as millions gather to watch this annual spectacle of the Super Bowl, we're reminded of the great and wonderful day that even greater millions and billions will gather uh, to see the uh, wedding feast and experience the wedding feast of the Lamb. We long for that day. And we thank you that we can gather even now to worship and hear from your word. And we pray that you would give us instruction as we consider how it is the minister ought to communicate and teach and handle the precious word of God. We ask your blessing upon our time in Jesus' name. Amen. Growing up in the suburbs of Houston, I was accustomed to the baneful life experience of traffic. Anywhere you had to go, you had to plan accordingly with the excess of traffic, whether urban or suburban. Every time my wife and family and I return to see my parents in Houston, we're amazed at just the growing sprawl of a five million person city of more roads and more lights and more overpasses. My uh, father, for, for most of my years growing up, would make a 30-mile commute from our home to across town, uh, spending the better part of an hour each way on the road. And later in the later years, when they did build the tollway, it alleviated some of the stress, but only by a fraction as more people joined uh, as well. The challenges of living in a large global city involve much expansion, ongoing repair and maintenance, In fact, many years that I lived in Houston, it seemed that you couldn't go more than five or ten miles from home without hitting some kind of construction. Workers widening the road or fixing an overpass or putting in a new light. There's earth-moving equipment and paving equipment and workers everywhere, some working and some just standing around watching other people work and waiting for more supplies to come. My dad used to joke that he should have gone into the orange barrel business. You would be a multi-millionaire today. Well, just as road work of any sizable city of significance today is a never-ending project of maintenance and repair and expansion, so the work of the gospel is an ongoing effort. The foundation of the gospel that is laid in a congregation's beginning cannot be left to neglect. It would suffer the eroding effects of unbelief. The enemy comes along to attack and leave landmines and potholes of alienation. The storms of life ravage that road with the wear and the tear along the pilgrim's highway. There are new people, young and old, who come through the doors of the church who have not heard these things before. And so the faithful minister, 
must stay at his task to handle the scriptures with a fiery determination to equip the travelers to make it to the celestial city. The gospel ministry is not for the lazy or the faint of heart. It's not for the weak or the ignorant or the timid. Rather, for men who are strong in grace. And how important it is for the people of God to understand just how vital the health of the body depends upon the word regularly and accurately proclaimed. The church must ensure that she is fed properly, nourished with heavenly food. The day and age in which we live faces many pressures. Pressures upon ministers and the church to soften biblical standards. Ecumenical desires, uh, ecumenical desires would threaten to uh, promote a spirit of tolerance that frowns upon prickly doctrine, exclusive truth claims, and high biblical standards of morality. So the enemy would squeeze the ministers of God's word into doing his work of the world. But Jesus, the author and the perfecter of the faith, would have his disciples doing the work of handling the word. The importance of rightly dividing the word of God in the old King James is illustrated, I believe, by the sad and terrifying story of Uzzah from the Old Testament. You remember the story when David had established himself in Jerusalem. He thought it well to bring up the Ark of the Covenant. So he had gathered a great assembly and he made a long parade and celebration of it. Unfortunately, the priest made a critical error of expediency by setting the Ark of the Covenant upon a cart to be pulled along by a team of oxen. And as that team came along a rough part of terrain, the oxen stumbled. The cart began to wobble. And the Ark of the Covenant began to slide, threatening to tip over. And a young Levite named Uzzah thoughtlessly stretched out his hand to steady the Ark. Seemed like a sensible thing to do. God disagreed. By striking Uzzah down dead. Poor Uzzah suffered the grave punishment of the priest failing to heed the instructions of the Lord. It was the Lord's will for the Ark of the Covenant not to be pulled along by oxen. But to be carried upon the shoulders of Levites who understood the sanctity of the task. They were to carry the burden themselves and not delegate it to beasts of burden. Likewise, any man who would presume to handle God's word must recognize the holiness of the task. He must not disregard the Lord's instructions in handling his precious word. The workmen of God must appreciate the enormity of such a task. As the eternal souls of men and women rest, at least from our human vantage point, upon his faithfulness to proclaim God's truth. 
any would-be preacher must understand that he is wholly unworthy, that his hands and his tongue and certainly his heart cannot handle, proclaim, or rightly divide God's word. Human flesh and reason are completely inadequate. We desperately need God's Holy Spirit to enable us, to qualify us by the precious blood of Christ, whose blood can wash these sin-stained fingers and enable this sinner to stand in the righteousness of Christ, to properly handle the word of life. What is the duty of the workmen of God's word? I believe his work, according to chapter 2, is a work of protection, of holiness, and rescue. Paul commands in verse 14 for Timothy to warn his hearers against quarreling with words. My precious children have the habit of quarreling about what one another has said. They enjoy putting words in each other's mouths to provoke one another. (coughs) It is childish nature to create controversy to get attention and to gain the upper hand against one another. Unfortunately, many adults fail to outgrow this. Contentious men feed upon argumentation, arguments that do not advance godliness. Their efforts do not add value to the body, but rather, as Paul says, ruin their hearers. Timothy, as the good workman, is charged to admonish these men to end the childishness and rather build up the body of Christ to maturity. So the workman of God, the minister, protects his flock by warning. Now there is a time and a place for open rebuke, but there's also a time for avoiding those. When people are repeatedly warned, yet prove incorrigible, we are, we are <clears throat> commanded to avoid them. Wise women know better to avoid those who are notorious for gossip. Wise children listen to their parents to avoid bad influences in school that might lead them astray. And all of us who follow Christ are called to avoid wolves in sheep's clothing. Those who would manipulate and promote lies and false rumors. In this context, Paul is very, very concerned with false teaching, one of the prevalent themes throughout the pastoral epistles. He says here in verses 16 through 18, that such false teaching spreads like gangrene when such an infection inflicts a part of the body. That part is beyond cure. There's nothing left to do but amputate it in order to save the body. And likewise, there are some people in the church who must be cut off from fellowship in order to preserve the health and the peace of the whole. For when antagonizers go unchecked, their attitudes and their agendas spread like a cancer that destroys the faith of many. And so the minister is to set an example and to teach the flock 
to avoid godless and self-indulgent chatter of those who are afflicted with such a spiritual disease. Well, the task of protection also involves building up upon the firm foundation of God's good promises. The central truth of Scripture is embedded here in verse 19. The Lord knows who are his. The good shepherd knows his sheep. Not one hair of our head can fall to the ground without his knowledge. He who feeds the sparrows knows our, knows our needs. And you and I are much more worth than sparrows. And with this promise also comes a commission that all of, those, all of those who confess his name should renounce a life of wickedness. We who bear the name of Christ are called to live a life worthy of his name, guarding our doctrine in our lives. This means our belief and our behavior must match. Fleeing what is evil and clinging to what is good, altogether recognizing that our performance does not earn the Father's favor. Rather, we rest assured in the fact that God has initiated with us, setting his fatherly affection upon us in Christ, redeeming us to live a life as a well-loved child of the living God. Well, the workman of God is called to protect. And he is also called to a work of holiness. In verse 20, Paul offers the familiar image of a household vessel, a jar, or some kind of container for meal or for beverage. And he uses this image to contrast different kinds of workmen. There are those workmen who are like gold or silver. But then there are also workmen who are like wood or clay. Now, Paul is not made in contrast of gifts or abilities... Rather, he is characterizing a man's faithfulness to the word of God. He is contrasting true teachers from false teachers. How many of you would uh, call back an electrician or a plumber to your house who did a complete fiasco his last time to visit? How many of you would go back to an auto mechanic who took you for a ride? charging you for things completely unnecessary. Of course not. You always seek a workman who is characterized with integrity, who has good references and a reputation that's reputable, who's responsible, dependable, and competent. Well, just as there are good and not-so-good doctors, faithful and not-so-faithful lawyers, reliable and unreliable home builders, So, ministers can be made of gold or made of wood to be cast into the fire. And it's fire that tests what is true and pure. It says that the faithful workman of God, in verse 21, will cleanse himself, washing himself and drinking from the wells of God's grace bathing his mind and heart, saturating himself in the word of God, that he might become an instrument, fit for doing noble purposes, made holy by the Lord Jesus, and become useful in the master's hands, fully equipped for any 
in every good work. The faithful workman also must understand the urgency of the task to flee from evil and to pursue a life of holiness. In verse 22, Paul exhorts Timothy to run as if running for his life out of a burning building, away from the corrupting desires of the flesh. Now we know from Scripture that desires are not evil in and of themselves. God made desire. Yet how Paul qualifies this by emphasizing youthful desires, meaning those unhealthy unrestrained, excessive, and forbidden desires characterized in youth and immaturity. Of course, what comes to mind may be sexual lust. But this, also, this desire also includes other kinds of immediate gratification, selfish ambition, material gain, seeking the praise of man. Such things are not to be warring for the affections of the workmen of God. Rather, he must wrestle to pin these things down, to put them away. Holiness is hard work. He must not allow these things to get hold of his heart, lest he bring dishonor to the name of Christ, or shame upon the church of God. Rather, Paul says, we are to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And as we pursue these things, we gain a love for holiness, and a holy hatred for what is evil. And notice also Paul says that such a pursuit is not done in isolation. No man or woman is an island. Rather, we run such a race in the good company of others who also call upon the name of the Lord out of a pure heart. One of the greatest compliments I ever received was from a high school friend visiting me while at college. And this friend of mine, while away at university, really struggled with the desires of youthfulness. Indulging in alcohol abuse, vulgarity, and sexual license. Well, this friend, after spending several days with me and some of my Christian friends uh, through Campus Crusade for Christ and RUF just said to me, Tucker, you have surrounded yourself with such wonderful people. That was a deeply humbling comment. Because I began to realize this was not something I had done. But the Lord had blessed me and surrounded me with loving Christians to help guard me against the vices that so characterize the college campus of today. Whom you associate with reveals a lot about you and will determine, in some sense, what kind of person you are becoming. So ask yourself are your friends and associates encouraging you in the pursuit of righteousness? Or are they a hindrance into your growth and godliness? Well, the workmen of God must not be ashamed in his task of protecting and pursuing holiness, and also must be committed to the work of rescue. Once again, we're reminded in verse 23 not to engage in foolish or stupid arguments that only produce quarrels. Paul could not make himself any more clear. This is all over the pastoral epistles. And why? 
because the good workman must reserve his strength for the rescue mission that God has given him, and to do so with gentleness and compassion. You see, a man who is caught up and embroiled in quarreling spends a tremendous amount of energy arguing and debating and rebuking, and he is tempted in his flesh to anger. Paul's remedy is to treat all such persons with kindness. This uh, worker of God's word must be able to teach. And he must guard his heart against resentment. Why does Paul say that here? Well, anybody in any type of leadership position, whether it be in the church, in the home, at the office, in government, will face opposition. You will be tempted to frustration and anger from those who would challenge you. Fallen people are notorious for challenging authority, for questioning the truth, for misrepresenting their leaders. And so the servant of God must be prepared for a spirit of hostility, blindsided attacks, slanderous reports, and infighting in the community. And he must be wise to search his heart, to uproot those seeds of bitterness, that he might not spite those whom he is called to love. His spirit is one of not retaliation. He's called not to lash back against those who would attack him, but rather gently instruct them, as Paul says, in the sound teaching of God's word. His task is not one of manipulation, Rather, communication, allowing God's word and God's Holy Spirit to do its work. That it may lead those who oppose him to repentance and a knowledge of the truth. The Apostle Peter, in reflecting upon the manner of the Lord Jesus, says this. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges Justly, in the likeness of Jesus, do not return evil for evil. Do not retaliate regardless of your pain suffered. Rather, take your wounds to the Lord to heal you. And ask him for his spirit to strengthen you. And to give you words of life to express to the hurting Proverbs 12, 18 says, Reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs 15, 1, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. As I reflected upon these truths of the gospel, I realized that this by no means is applying only to pastors dealing with ornery sheep. This applies to parents. As they endure the hardship years of raising unruly teenagers. Or toddlers who are already acting like teenagers. Parents are called to gently instruct their children. And this requires humility and patience. Parents must search their own hearts. To uproot those seeds of resentment. To remove obstacles from their eyes that they might see clearly to take out the specks in their children's eyes. 
It is such persevering love that is oftentimes the means of God to grant repentance to rebellious, stubborn hearts, softening them to receive the word of truth. Likewise, adult children dealing with the difficulties of aging parents who struggle to follow their doctor's orders for their health care needs, preparing them for retirement and their long-term care needs in our households, children, parents, spouses, in all of our spheres of responsibility. We who bear the name of Christ are called to lead in a spirit of gentleness, patience, and long-suffering. Well, this theme of perseverance comes to a final highlight in the last verse, verse 26, because there is so much at stake. We are reminded here in verse 26 that those who are in opposition to our message are in bondage. They are spiritually unhealthy as captives to the evil one. Paul even goes on to characterize this kind of opposition as a kind of insanity which expresses itself in irrational claims and illogical behavior. Paul says that such persons must come to their senses, back into a right frame of mind, to recognize that God is creator and redeemer. And that those who are opposed to us would see us as allies and not adversaries. When we are reminded of people's plights, we are moved towards compassion. We are reminded of what we were and what we would be without Christ. Lost, helpless, and hopeless. Without God in the world. Dr. Brian Chapel, president of Covenant Theological Seminary, and this year's missions conference here next month, had uh, these words to say to uh, a group of us in a senior preaching class at Covenant years ago regarding antagonists in the church. He says, Don't expect healthy responses from unhealthy people. Just as people get cranky, and difficult when they are physically ill. So spiritually unhealthy people express themselves and attack in very painful, hurtful, and destructive ways. Just as good doctors and nurses have compassion upon their patients, even as they give them tough remedies, so the Lord's servants of all kinds are called to pity, even as they minister with tough love. People don't need quick fixes. New therapies that promise freedom and life without any hard work or discipline. People need a steady diet in God's word. They need the message of the gospel, the cross of Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead. People need the message of God's Holy Spirit who enables us to put sin to death. They need their eyes opened from their spiritual blindness. Ultimately, 
People need Jesus. They don't need you. They don't need me. They don't need our fallen, broken workmen and our broken tools. They need the Lord Jesus, who alone is the good workman, who was sent by the Father on a rescue mission. We cannot do his work. It's Jesus that protects, that defends, that delivers his people. And only as we humble ourselves and submit to the lordship of Christ and recognize that it is by his power alone can we join him in the task of building the highways of the Lord to repave it, to widen it, to fix it, to repair it, to stretch it, to enable it to carry the load of people who are on their way along the road of salvation. The wise workman of God comes to Jesus to ask the good shepherd for strength, to be strong in grace as he would labor to protect and to partake in God's rescue mission to seek and to save the lost. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, our Creator and our Redeemer, Lord Jesus, the builder and sustainer of your church, thank you, O Lord, that you are the good workman. You are the one who saves us and protects us and delivers us, and you call men and women to serve as your ambassadors, as your workers, to reach others, to build up others, to lead them to the knowledge of the truth. Father, we pray tonight that you would guide us and strengthen us and equip us for the work that you have prepared in advance for us to do. Lead us from this place by your Holy Spirit that we might bring honor and glory to our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen.